This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. May I ask you to find your seats? We would like to start now. I would like to welcome you all in the name of the Department of German and the European Forum at Stanford to an event that is co-sponsored by the Austrian Consulate General Los Angeles. Both the Austrian Federal President Heinz Fischer and the Austrian Federal Chancellor and current president of the European Union, Wolfgang Schüssel, sent their greetings to the audience at Stanford on this occasion. My name is Andreas Dorschel. I am from Graz in Austria and currently at Stanford as the Austrian Visiting Chair Professor. It is a great honor for me to introduce to you Leopold Engleitner, a man of outstanding courage and conviction. Leopold Engleitner is now 101 years old. He was born in Salzburg, Austria, in 1905. Hence, when he was nine years old, he experienced the outbreak of the First World War, which brought immense suffering over Europe, and finally, when Leopold Engleitner was 13, the breakdown of the Austrian Empire, then the continent's second largest empire. Leopold Engleitner nearly died of the Spanish flu that followed the war. In 1932, he became a Jehovah's Witness. True to his faith, Engleitner, after 1938, when the Nazis had taken over Austria, refused to serve in Hitler's army. He was scorned, hunted, imprisoned in three Nazi concentration camps in Germany, Buchenwald near Weimar, Niederhagen in Westphalia, and Ravensbrück, north of Berlin. He was beaten, threatened with execution, and tortured, but survived, weighing only 61 pounds. Never renouncing his faith, he was released from the Ravensbrück concentration camp in 1943. Leopold Engleitner's testimony of his experience during Nazism has had major impact in Austria, for instance, in school education, where the events during that period had been downplayed after the war. He has since spread his testimony much further. Leopold Engleitner is presently on his second tour through the U.S. and has recently spoken at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. and at Columbia University, New York. He is joined by his biographer and friend Bernhard Ramastorfer. Ramastorfer's biography of Leopold Engleitner, Unbroken Will, was published in the U.S. in 2004 and forms the basis of a documentary film that won Bernhard Ramersdorfer the Golden Bear. Please join me in applauding Leopold Engleitner for coming here to us.
Let me shortly announce the schedule for this event. Uh, we have about 90 minutes uh, time, and after these introductory words, there will be a short presentation of the book Unbroken Will by Bernhard Rammerstorfer of about 10 minutes, then followed by an interview with Mr. Leopold Engleitner, which is intertwined with the reading from the book. Uh, after that, we will watch an abbreviated version of the film on the life of Mr. Leopold Engleitner, which will take a little bit more than 20 minutes. And after that, you will have the opportunity for questions and answers. Uh, this will take about 20 to 25 minutes. And we have organized this in a way uh, with these little cards that I hope all of you have. Please write down uh, your questions and these will be collected after the film. So please move these cards then that they are after the film ready in the margins of the seating uh, row so that they can be uh, collected. Uh, thank you very much, and I would now like to ask uh, Bernhard Rammersdorfer to start presenting his book. Ladies and gentlemen, I, first of all, I'd like to thank Professor Andreas Dorschel and Miss Nancy Easterbrook for their kind invitation and for giving us the chance to present the life story of Leopold Engleitner, who is now the oldest surviving internee of Buchenwald, Niederhagen and Ramsbrück concentration camps. This event is an absolute high point in Mr. Engleitner's life. He is now in his 101st year, and it's a great honor for him, as it is for me, to be here with you today. Mr. Engleitner was very much looking forward to his second tour to the United States, and he was very keen to see San Francisco. And he is, uh, and both he and I are tremendously impressed by this beautiful city in this wonderful part of the United States and its friendly people. Let me briefly explain what is, it was that prompted me not only to write a book, but also to produce a documentary and an educational DVD about the conscientious objector. I met Leopold Engleitner in 1994 quite by chance, and he told me that he was interned in three concentration camps that aroused my interest and I asked him a great many questions and he talked and talked and talked <laughs> and I realized that he enjoyed that he had someone at long last who was really listening to him. The longer I listened, the more deeply moved I was by his story. I suddenly had a unique opportunity to delve into the entire, uh, into the history of the entire 20th century. Here was a man who, as a boy, had met the Austrian Emperor Franz Josef and had endured the horrors of the First World War. As a simple farmhand, during the Nazi regime, he rejected Adolf Hitler and refused to join the German army. He was subjected to dreadful abuse 
But despite this, his will remained unbroken and he maintained his personal integrity and his faith. Many thoughts came into my head as I listened to him. It's phenomenal, I thought to myself, that a violent and totalitarian system that succeeded in manipulating masses of people could not break the will of an ordinary man. Where did he get his strength from? It was clear to me that this man was something special and that his story could provide valuable lessons for the peaceful coexistence of mankind. For me, people like Leopold Engleitner, who show such great character, are a gift to society, and what they've experienced during their lives should be made available for coming generations. The lessons of his biography should encourage especially young people to adhere to just principles and to listen to their conscience, no matter how much pressure is exerted on them. Bearing in mind the historical responsibility of my homeland, I wish to show by documenting Nazi, Nazi atrocities that I am willing to learn for our, from our history. Since 1999, Mr. Engleitner and I have been giving many talks at schools and university in an effort to make young people aware of what happened during this terrible time. For example, in 2005, we gave 31 presentations to a total of 5,000 attendees, and we drove about 8,000 miles by car. It's, by, it's my hope that by doing so, we are helping to ensure that something like this never happens again. I'd now like to tell you a little bit about the work that the book and the DVD involved. My aim was to write a biography that was as authentic and well-researched as possible and would contain an accurate portrayal of Mr. Engleitner's remarkable personality. Over the years, we had many long and detailed conversations, some of which went on far into the night, while others began at four o'clock in the morning. We also undertook a tour of the sites of the concentration camps that Mr. Engleitner was held in, covering about 1,800 miles. While we were there, we shot footage for the documentary. My research also entailed looking for the records and minutes of the court cases that had followed Mr. Engleitner's arrests in the 1930s. This search proved to be extremely difficult. Every court told me that the files had long since been destroyed. And this was a serious blow because I hoped that the original documents which had more light on the reasons for his arrests. I didn't lose heart, however, and went to the archives and records office of the province of Upper Austria to look for the documents myself. And to my great delight, I found what I was looking for. At last, I had all the, rec the court records that I had so destroyed. Once I had these records, I started visiting local and university libraries to research the laws that were in force at that time. Personal contact with other survivors who'd been imprisoned with Mr. Engleitner was also important, as it confirmed what he'd told me. 
I also try to find out the dates of births and deaths of every person mentioned in the book, including them in the index of persons to prove their authenticity. I was also determined to make an educational DVD for schools to accompany the book. It includes the prize-winning documentary Unbroken Will and an abridged version of it, plus five films showing special events relating to Mr. Engleitner's awareness rising during the last years. It also contains school material such as quizzes, filling in the blanks, word searches, and writing assessment questions in PDF format in English, German, and Italian. And this year, I produced a Spanish version of the DVD, and the latest production is a documentary about Mr. Engleitner's 2004 tour of the United States, entitled Unbroken Will Captivates the United States. After the interview with Mr. Engleitner, we will have the opportunity to watch an abridged version of the documentary Unbroken Will. Now to my personal summary. It's incredible how many details Mr. Engleitner remembers. He's been able to recall exactly dates and conversations from over 60 years ago. The most remarkable aspect of the many conversations I've had with Mr. Engleitner is his upbeat personality. Not once he has shown anger or hatred towards those who tormented him. Despite his dramatic past and physical infirmities, he is one of the most contented people I've ever met. Admittedly, he was greatly disappointed in the years following the war by the, by the fact that his neighbors wanted nothing to do with him and that he had virtually no opportunity to talk about, about what he'd suffered. The townsfolk branded him a coward and some even claimed that the concentration camps had never existed. But his trust in God and his unbroken will helped him to cope with this too. And in recent years, he's been the subject of a marvelous rehabilitation. As a mark of gratitude and respect, he was received by the Austrian president and he was invited to the Austrian parliament. He also received best wishes for success for this trip from German president Horst Köhler and Chancellor Angela Merkel, who have been very impressed by Mr. Engleitner's activities in the United States. I myself have learned very much from my work with Mr. Engleitner. What he's taught me is that tolerance, humanity, and respect for the rights of others are among the highest ideals and are worth defending even under the most adverse circumstances. And his story teaches something very outstanding. In the German Reich, military service was reintroduced in 1935, and young men were trained for World War II. Leopold Engleitner, however, 
did peace training. His life is an outstanding example of peace and humanity. How much better would it have been if many others had opted for peace training instead of war training? If they had, mankind would have been spared unspeakable suffering. Before, uh, now, before we watch the abridged version of the documentary, I'd like now Mr. Robert Wagemann to interview Mr. Engleitner and Mr. Demosthenes to read a few extracts from the book. And it's interesting that Mr. Robert Wagemann is also a victim of that time because as a child in Germany, he narrowly escaped being murdered by the Nazis. As a schoolboy, Leopold Engleitner experienced the horrors of World War I. He suffered unspeakable poverty. He can tell us what was the mood of soldiers going off to war and what do they think that they would face? Yeah, in two weeks, we will be home again. By then, Serbia will be defeated. However, that was a great error, because the horrible war lasted almost four and a half years. After the war, Leopold Engleitner caught the Spanish flu, which killed more than 20 million people worldwide after the war. But he survived. His desire for peace and justice grew ever greater. In the years following the war, there was a saying that helped people uh, to hope for a lasting peace. It became Engleitner's motto. Now, how was this saying? How did it go? Das nie wieder Krieg durch furchterliche Erde. Das bürgt der Krieg, dem all das Leid entsteht. Dass der Welt ein ewiger Friede werde. Darum nie he said, let war never again plow this earth. Let war be recognized as the source of all suffering. Let there be eternal peace on earth. Let there never, never again be war. Sadly, this hope only lasted 21 years. In 1930, the political situation in Austria became more radical. And this was the time of astrofascism. As a result, Engleitner was faced with enormous difficulties because his conversion from the Roman Catholic Church to the Bible students as Jehovah's Witnesses, which were called then, and religious intolerance was now widespread. In 1932, he lost his job because of the economic depression. Soon afterward, a clerk from the local labor office in Bad Ischl visited him, and this is what he told him. Ihnen wird die Arbeitslosenunterstützung entzogen. Denn hier in Österreich wird nur nominellen Kirchen wirklich Recht auf die Arbeitslosenunterstützung. 
Aber ich war nicht einverstanden. Ich wandte mich an die Oberbehörden und sagte, dies sei ein krasser Widerspruch zum Friedensvertrag von St. Germain, Abschirm Artikel 62 und 63. Denn hier in diesem Vertrag wird jeden Österreicher volle Religionsfreiheit gewährt. Hat das was genützt? Nein, das haben Sie nicht wahrgenommen. So the uh, man who visited him said, your employment benefits have been stopped because only the major churches are recognized in Austria. I complained to the authorities explaining that this was a serious violation of the Treaty of St. Germain, Articles 62 and Article 63, which guaranteed every Austrian the right to freedom of religion. But it did not do any good. As a result, he had no income whatsoever. And only, the only way he could earn enough to live on was to take on odd jobs. When Austria was annexed by the German Reich in 1939, Englandness prospects became virtually hopeless. On April 4, 1939, he was arrested in Bad Ischl by the Gestapo and held in custody. He was interrogated many times and threatened with the worst punishment imaginable if he refused to give up his religion and go to war for Hitler. He now had to prove that he really would say no to military service. The following extract from the original minutes of the court hearing in Wells of September 19th of 1939 shows how courageously he argued his case. We will hear now a reading from the paperback book on pages 114. Ingleitner then made a statement recorded in the minutes in which he insisted that even after more than five months' imprisonment, he was still determined not to turn aside from his chosen way and would resolutely maintain his principles. He stated that he was perfectly willing to do any kind of work for the public good as long as it did not relate to military activities and would on no account approve of the National Socialist Party's racial laws. Then he added, The gramophone confiscated at our meeting place is my property. I bought it in 1935. I received the records from a brother in the faith whose name I will not disclose. If I were set free today and could start a conversation with someone, I would try to build up, bring up the subject of our religion. I would speak in such a way that I would be recognized as a witness. If I had printed matter with me and another person wished to have some of it, I would give it to him. If I am asked about my position regarding the government, my answer is that I take no interest in political affairs. I abide by the laws of the government as long as they do not contradict the Bible, since God's word is above the law of the state. I also reject military service because it runs counter to the fifth commandment. That's Exodus 20:13. thou shalt not kill. If I were called up to the, go to the front, I would refuse to go. I am aware that my adherence to this view could cost me my life, but there is nothing I can do about that because my life depends on compliance with God's laws. After Ingleitner had made it clear to Dr. Tintara that he was prepared to face the prospect of the death penalty in order to obey the commandment, thou shalt not kill, the judge ended the questioning 
and had the prisoner taken back to his cell. His uncompromising stance led to his internment in Buchenwald concentration camp. We will see in the film what he had to face on his first day there. I'd like to ask Mr. Engleitner to tell us what he experienced in the penal company that worked in the quarry in Buchenwald concentration camp. In the staff company in 1939 was in Buchenwald so streng that young Häftlinge from 15, 16 years in einigen Wochen graue Haare bekommen. Und außerdem hat es in ganz Monat geregnet, sodass wir jeden Tag schwemmen als Gurren sind. Wir konnten aber in der Barke nichts trocknen. So mussten wir jeden Morgen nasskalte Kleidung wieder anziehen und wieder den ganzen Tag arbeiten bei strömenden Regen. It was so dreadful that young prisoners of 15 went gray in a matter of weeks. I was by no means sure that I would survive. Besides that, it put heavily in the days of October until the end. And we were thoroughly, thoroughly wet. And, but we couldn't dry our clothes in the barracks either in the evening. So they were still cold and wet when we put them on again in the morning. We had to work all day in wet clothing. Now, what can you tell us about the way the Jewish prisoners were treated in Buchenwald? The Juden were no stronger behandled than the Zeugenhofers. They were like animals from small animals. And also, they were assessed with bullets. The Jewish people had it even worse than Jehovah's Witnesses. I saw they were forced to work especially hard. They were often harnessed like draft animals <laughs> to heavy laden hay, wagon, hay wagons with broad iron wheels and driven with whips like cattle. I saw how they toiled and labored and how some of them collapsed and, from exhaustion. I felt great pity for them. In November 1939, an assassination attempt was made on Hitler in Munich. It failed and in his anger also punished the prisoners in Buchenwald concentration camp, as we can see in the book. And now we will read some part of the, on page 139 in the book. While the penal company was still in quarantine, news arrived that an attempt had been made on Hitler's life on November 8, 1939, in the Burger Brockleller in Munich. The attempt had failed, and George Elser, the would-be assassin, had been arrested and taken to Sockenhausen concentration camp. The prisoners in Buchenwald also felt the backlash of Hitler's anger as a Fuhrer ordered that their rations be stopped. For three days, no prisoner had anything to eat. The Jews were starved for six days. There had never been enough to eat, so this additional restriction was an almost unbearable torture. After three days had elapsed, the Jews begged other prisoners for food but sharing was scarcely possible with the meager rations the prisoners received. This time, Engleitner bore the punishment more easily than most. Just before the rations were stopped, hunger had driven him to eat his entire 10-day ration of molasses. He had such a bad stomach ache that he could not eat anything anyway. On November 9, 1939, 
Engleitner and some other prisoners in the penal company watched through the window of their block as 21 Jews were led out of the camp by SS men. One prisoner remarked, It's a bad sign if that Scharfuhrer is going with them. And the footnote, Scharfuhrer is equivalent to a sergeant. One prisoner remarked, He's one of the worst. In the evening, they learned that their fears had been justified. The Jews had been shot in the quarry, purportedly another reprisal for the assassination attempt on Hitler. In the concentration camps, many prisoners were killed with lethal injections. The needle used was very large. The syringe was filled with phenol or air, which was injected straight into the prisoner's heart. One day, Leopold Engleitner was very nearly the victim of one of these lethal injections. What happened exactly? Eines Morgens bekam ich einen Schwächeanfall. Andere Häftlinge trugen mich in das Lager und die Sanitäter dort machten eine Bemerkung, die ich wohl verstanden habe. Sie sagten, der hat auch überstanden. Ich verstand diesen Ausdruck. Und als die Sanitäter in den Nebenraum gingen, nahm ich alle meine Kräfte zusammen und bin verschwunden. In the concentration camps, many... I'm sorry. One morning. Pardon? One morning, okay. One morning, I suddenly had a spell of weakness and collapsed on the floor. I was taken to the sick bay and laid in a bed. When the orderlies saw me, they said, well, he is out of it now as well. They went into the next room to get the injection. I gathered all my strength and crawled away. As mentioned, uh, I also am a survivor with a similar, with a similar experience. Um, my parents were Jehovah's Witnesses. My father did not vote for Hitler. And uh, my mother was incarcerated because she distributed uh, resolutions. And uh, by, that was by 1936. By 1937, when she was pregnant with me, and she was for a short time incarcerated. Yet, uh, due to Hitler's birthday, an an amnesty was uh, going on, and so all non-criminals and uh, so on, they they were released. So my mom was also released. And due to not having prenatal care, um, she gave birth to me. I was a breech birth. And this uh, was so that uh, my right hip became defective. Now I had two strikes against me, born to Jehovah's Witnesses and having a defect. And in those days, uh, anyone who had a defect perished. First, the ones in the asylums, which were mentally handicapped, and then others which could not work for the fatherland and produce. So one day we were asked to get in front of a panel of doctors and they had a form, and on that form, that I found later on, is either if there's a positive or a negative sign. Negative meant death, positive meant that you could live. Yet uh, when I was examined, my mom was uh, just sitting on the outside of the door, overheard the conversation, 
And the conversation went like this. Uh, ah, nach dem Mittagessen geben wir eine Spritze und schlafen ihn ein. In other words, uh, oh, after lunch, we give, him a, we give him a needle and put him away. So, uh, you ladies, I think if you have children, it will not go over too good if you hear some, something like that. Did not go over good with my mom either, because mm. my mom is like a tiger. <laughs> so she got my clothes. We went out, went down to the, uh, the exit, and there was that uh, other person who wouldn't want to let us out. And uh, so um, she said, now look, you do not know me, and you do not want to know me. So while that person went for help, we went outside, went down to the Neger River uh, between the high reeds. She put on my clothes, and we went back to Mannheim. Then, uh, shortly thereafter, we, uh, we were uh, um, bombed out, and uh, Mannheim, the city where we lived, was bombed out to 80%, and we like to believe that, our, that my records were destroyed also. But then we had to move on, went to my grandparents' father's side, and first day of school. And of course, uh, my parents uh, trained me, and I know what was coming. And so uh, as we assembled in the front yard of the stool, uh, school, uh, we had to give the national salute, and we had to sing the national anthem, which I did not do. Now, I, I want to tell you, I'm not a hero. I was looking for the biggest guy there is to hide behind it. <laughs> uh, but it was noticed. And so the next day they came and wanted to pick me up. It was the town policeman, it was the priest in the party uniform, and a deputy of the mayor. And only due to the fact that my grandpa was a well-known man in that little hamlet, and he drew a tantrum on the street, and so they became ashamed and left. But that was the time that we had to move on. This time we went to my grandparents' mother's side. They had a cabin in, in the woods. And so in the last two years, that is where we laid low and uh, survived. It was not easy. We only had an outhouse, but 200 yards away and another 200 year, uh, yards away, we had a well where we catched the water. We had no electricity and so on, and it was hard. And, of course, I could not go into the town to play with the children. Uh, I had always to occupy myself. Uh, and uh, it was really bad. But then the war was over. The GIs came in. And I guess they must have felt pity on me because I was a little skinny thing. And so I got to know Hershey chocolate bars <laughs> and oranges and chiclets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, and that was my story, or part of my story. Now back to Mr. Engleiner. After narrowly escaping with his life, he was uh, deported to Niederhagen concentration camp. Food was so scarce there uh, that the prisoners looked for scraps anywhere they could find. Yeah, the hunger was so cold 
dass wir immer noch Klangsmittel suchten. Wurden ja, im Mülleimer, da fanden wir äh, Knochen, die so lange gekocht wurden, dass wir sie sogar mit unseren schlechten Zähnen noch beißen konnten. Der Hunger war so groß, dass wir looked for bones in the rubbish bins. They had been boiled so long that we could even chew them despite our rotten teeth. Sometime later, Engleidner witnessed the brutality of the SS. And again, we have part of the, uh, the book on page 174, which will explain. A short time later, Engleitner and some 100 other prisoners had to dig up squares of turf in a field next to the camp. As they carried the turf back on their shoulders, a Dutch prisoner made a break for it through a forest plantation. He broke ranks about five yards ahead of Engleitner and had only gone about 10 yards when he was shot dead by a sentry. The other prisoners had to put their hands behind their heads and prostrate themselves on the ground. The dead body lay at the side of the road, waiting to be taken into the camp by a work detail. At midday, roll call, the prisoners had to file past the body. The man had been shot in the back of the head, blowing his brains out. Ingleitner could not bear to look. The labor su supervisor, Ludwig Rehn, saw him averting his gaze and pushed him right on top of the corpse. In disgust, Ingleitner picked himself up again as quickly as he could, horrified at Rehn's inhuman behavior. At the same time, he remembered his own experiences and how close he himself had come to death. Now we want to ask Master Engleitner, uh, as he asked Nessus men, what the reward was for such a escapade. Einen Wachmann, der das Mitgefühl einfach nicht abdrücken konnte, dem fragte ich, was hätten Sie jetzt bekommen, wenn Sie mich erschossen hätten? Er sagte, jetzt zwei Wochen Urlaub. Uh, I uh, asked, an, asked an SS man, if you would have shot me, how much uh, leave would you have, would have become? And the SS man uh, said about that he would have gotten two weeks leave for it. What did the SS in Niederhagen concentration camp do to the Jewish youth, Günther Rasenberg, who was only 15 years old? A Jewish young man, Nur weil eine Tochter eines hohen SS-Offiziers am Kopf getroffen hatte, daher wurde er wegen einer Rassenschande aufgehängt. They hanged him for alleged illicit relation with an Aryan. And what took place is during a snowball fight. He had hit the daughter of a high-ranking SS official, and for that he was hung. On July 15, 1943, it seemed that Engleitner's ordeal was finally over. He was released from Ravensbrück concentration camp. And what condition? Schließlich wurde ich gefragt, ob ich bereit wäre, mein ganzes Leben in der Zwangsweise in der Landwirtschaft zu arbeiten. Ich war einverstanden. He said that he had to agree to forced labor in agriculture for the rest of his life. 
Engleitner could not understand why he had been released. Normally, this was only granted to Bible students, as Jehovah's Witnesses were called in the camps, who had signed a declaration renouncing their faith. But Reichsführer SS man Heinrich Himmler had realized that he could not break Jehovah's Witnesses and decided in 1943 to try a different approach. He, he decreed that individual Bible students were to be sent to work in agriculture and could be released from the concentration camp without having to give up their faith. Engleitner was fortunate to be released from the concentration camp like this. But only three weeks after his return home, he had to go to an army medical examination. After a short examination, the doctor said, because of your curvature of your spine, you should be exempted from military service. But only a week later, he had to go back for another examination. And without examining him, again, the same doctor produced his medical report, which said, Ich wurde, mir wurde der Befund vorgelesen, Kriegsverwendung von Truppersozreserve Nummer 1. Ich war aber nicht einverstanden, ich sagte Nein dazu. Well, the uh, medical read to him, fit for active service at the front lines, reserve number one. As a result, Engleitner received his color papers into German Wehrmacht on 1917-1945. How would he react? What would he do? Now, these questions are answered in the abridged version of the documentary Unbroken Will that we will now watch. Leopold Engleitner was born on July 23, 1905, in Eigenvogelhof, Austria. His father was also named Leopold and worked in a sawmill, while his mother was the daughter of a big estate owner. Engleitner spent his childhood in Pandel, a small village in the rural district community of Bad Ischl. He started work as a farmhand while still at a very young age, after which he was employed in many different jobs as a labourer. He then worked for the road construction department in Bad Ischl, starting at the beginning of the 50s, until his retirement in 1969. In 1949, Leopold Engleitner married Theresia Kurz, who had been left with two small children when her first husband had abandoned them. Together with his wife and adopted daughter Ida, Engleitner lived in Weinbach, a village in the rural district community of St. Wolfgang in the Salzkammergut. For seven years, Leopold Engleitner lovingly and unselfishly cared for his wife, Theresia, who suffered from acute diabetes, right until her death in 1981. Since then, he has been living by himself, but is still going strong, even doing most of the housework himself. As a schoolboy, Leopold Engleitner experienced the devastating effects of the First World War. The role that religions had played in this war raised many doubts in his mind. The senseless genocide and the terrible misery of that critical time created a strong abhorrence of war in him that was to influence his future life. 
In Bad Ischl on April the 4th, 1939, he was caught under the wheels of the merciless machinery of the cruel Hitler regime. On this evening, he had joined some other Jehovah's Witnesses at the Hortar's house to celebrate the Last Supper. This came to an abrupt end. All of a sudden, we heard a knock on the window. I went to the door and asked, What's happened? Gestapo, was the answer. What have we got to do with the Gestapo? I said. We are not criminals. We'll show you what you are, the intruders shouted, stormed into the room and pushed me to the side. Where are your watchtowers hidden? They roared. I looked surprised. But we don't have any watchtower magazines. We'd be glad if we had some, I tell you. But we haven't had any for a long time. They asked. Then, for what reason are you all assembled here together? We are commemorating the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Surely that can't be forbidden, can it? After they confirmed that, of course, reading the Bible was not forbidden, they discussed for a while among themselves what to do and then said to us, if we were to view ourselves as an independent group which had nothing whatever to do with the Jehovah's Witnesses and without any compromise submit to Hitler, who was the Führer, they would abstain from arresting us. I simply told them, if that's the case, you have to ask the others also for their opinion. I can't speak for them, but I, for my part, can't agree to that. When no one agreed to that offer, four of them, including Leopold Engleitner, were taken away and confined in the district court in Bad Ischl at about 10.30 that evening. The official reason? Holding of a Bible discourse. After being questioned by the Gestapo in Linz the next day, Leopold Engleitner was transferred to the police detention house in Linz. He was then held in custody at the provincial prisons in Linz and Wales. They were shouting at us continually during the course of our interrogation, thinking that might scare us to death. Especially, the topic of military service was brought up several times during our examination. In connection with that, the judge once turned to me and said, while shaking his head, I am warning you for the last time, if you continue to object to military service, then you already have both feet in the grave. Change your ways, I just said. If I've already got both feet in the grave just standing here, what on earth will it be like on the front lines? Or do they shoot At first, he made ever such a stern face because of what I just said, but when he saw I wasn't very impressed, he started smiling. As of 1937, more than 250,000 people of over 30 different nationalities were transported like cattle to Buchenwald concentration camp on Ettersberg Hill. Under the most inhuman conditions, about 56,000 of them died in this horrific concentration camp. On Wednesday, October 9, 1939, Leopold Engleitner arrived at Weimar train station in Thuringia, Germany. It was late in the evening when he and the other detainees were ruthlessly squeezed into a prison lorry. They were then driven along what was called the Blood Road, which brought them to the Buchenwald camp. On arrival, the prisoners were herded along the Karacho Road and into the bunker, 
where they were exposed to the violence of the young bunker overseer, Martin Sommer, a well-known tormentor and killer. Ten men were squashed together into one small prison cell. Afterwards, the overseer went through the bunker, stopping at each cell, bellowing at each one of us and wanting to know the reason why he had been brought to Buchenwald. And he also asked me. I said, I'm one of Jehovah's Witnesses. He dragged me out of the cell, hitting me like mad. After that, the SS man, Martin Sommer, pushed him to the guardroom. In the guardroom, the overseer started asking me things I could never have answered to his satisfaction. Therefore, he forced me to lean over a bench and started hitting me with a switch on my back and on my behind, using the thicker end while holding the rod at the thinner one. And because that didn't bring him any satisfaction either, he shouted in frustration, I'll have to shoot you. Then, after he had slowly pulled out his pistol, so that I would have time to get really scared, he pressed it against my temple and said, now I'll pull the trigger. He then asked me, are you ready? Yes, I said. Forget it, he snarled. You're even too stupid to shoot. As a newcomer, I was allotted to the penal company and received an outfit marked by a purple triangle, which showed that I was one of Jehovah's Witnesses, and a black dot, which indicated that I was assigned to work in the quarry. The winter months between 1939 and 1940 were very severe, and temperatures as low as minus 36 degrees prevailed. Due to the weakened condition of those imprisoned, dysentery broke out in the camp, and the penal company was isolated. Within just 10 weeks, hundreds of them died. Pallbearer to the gate. These words could be heard all over the camp every day. Happily, Leopold Engleitner was not only spared by this malicious illness, but also survived the hard labor in the quarry. After a certain period of quarantine, he was assigned to Block 44, together with all the other earnest Bible students, as Jehovah's Witnesses were called in the camp. About 400 Bible students were housed in Block 44, a two-story stone building. The walls of the rooms were lined by three rows of beds, one above the other, and covered with straw or wood wool. When a Bible was smuggled in, it was taken apart and divided up into single books. I got the book of Job, which I somehow had to keep hidden on my body. I was only able to read it during the night, and after three months I had to return it. The Bible students were among the selected few detainees who were allowed to shave the SS men, because they knew that they would not be harmed in any way. In March 1941, Leopold Engleitner, together with 90 other prisoners, was deported in a freight train to Niederhagen concentration camp in Wedelsburg. The Reichsführer SS Heinrich Himmler had big construction plans for Wedelsburg in mind, where a gigantic SS headquarters was to be built, which had been planned by the architect Bartels. To accomplish this huge task, a large crowd of laborers was required. Since many of the prisoners had been shot when trying to escape, Heinrich Himmler decided to use the hard-working Bible students. 
Firstly, to work them to death, and secondly, because he knew that they would never try to escape. Out of 3,900 prisoners, almost 1,300 found their agonizing death in Niederhagen concentration camp. For Leopold Engleitner, detainee number 46, the imprisonment in Babelsburg in Westphalia meant two more years of humiliation. From May until August, we only had nettle soup to eat, and I got more hungry every day. In the autumn of 1942, after a hard working day in the field, it was proposed to him that he could be released. His freedom seemed to be within reach. I was assigned to a small harvest unit again. It was evening when the leader of the unit told me that I had the chance to be released and could work for a peasant who desperately needed someone to lend him a hand. The next day I had to show up at the political section where they told me that there was the possibility for me to be released. But on what condition? They wanted me to sign a declaration renouncing my beliefs. I said, I'd like to work as a farmhand, but I cannot sign this paper. With this declaration, the SS tried to entice the Bible students to renounce their faith. One signature and they would have been free again. But like Leopold Engleitner, most of them were not willing to pay the price. One day, he had to join another working unit, and because he couldn't keep pace, a small gap had developed between him and the one walking in front. A guard noticed this, grew very angry, and brutally kicked him from behind with his boot, between the legs, into his abdomen. Leopold Engleitner doubled up in pain, then collapsed on the spot, unable to move. I couldn't walk anymore. The others had to carry me into the camp. At the evening roll call, I had to lie on the ground next to my fellow prisoners. Later I found out that the guard had crushed one of my testicles. Ravensbrück concentration camp was originally intended for women only, but from 1941 onward the camp was enlarged to accommodate 20,000 men as well. Altogether it had held 153,000 prisoners, tens of thousands of whom died. Leopold Engleitner was registered as detainee number 3523. He had seen many terrible things, but what awaited him there was beyond his worst fears. It was July 1943 when all of a sudden everything took a turn for the better for Leopold Engleitner. Without being forced to sign a declaration renouncing his faith, he was released and so escaped the murderous machinery alive. How was this possible? I was ordered to the guardroom where this S-man made me a proposition. You can be released. But without a signature, I interrupted him abruptly. That's not necessary, he said. You only have to put yourself under obligation to work solely in agriculture in the future. And this I was ready to do. Then I was introduced to the camp medical officer. He asked me, you are still a Jehovah's Witness? I said, jawohl, Herr Hauptsturmführer. We are not allowed to release you then, are we? He remarked. 
after staying at me for some time, he finally said, but I tell you what, we are glad to get rid of such a wretched creature as you. In that he was right, since I was covered in ulcers and weighed only 28 kilos. After over four years of the most inhuman and brutal treatment, Leopold Engleitner returned home on July the 16th, 1943. Following his release from Ravensburg concentration camp, Leopold Engleitner began his forced labor as a farmhand for Johann and Franziska Unterberger, who had a farm in Windhag in the rural district community of St. Wolfgang. He thought that the end of the Second World War was just around the corner and hoped the worst was over, until one day, about three weeks later, all of a sudden, he was summoned to a military medical examination. Then, on April the 17th, 1945, Leopold Engleitner received his call-up papers. Within six hours, he had to report to the headquarters in Kumau, Czechoslovakia. Since I was determined not to join this great war, I had no choice but to escape into the nearby mountain region. In the night of April the 17th to April the 18th, 1945, Leopold Engleiden started his escape from the claws of the NS military police. He fled over the Wielinger Wand into the forests on the southern slope of Leonsberg Mountain. He was now a deserter, a conscientious objector, and everyone had the right to shoot him. After a week, the warm fern wind subsided and cold winter weather returned to that region. It even started to snow very thick and heavily again. I was soaked to my skin, so that I saw no other possibility but to find shelter in the Meister Eben Alphut, belonging to the family Unterberger. When I got there, I found enough wood lying around to light a fire to get warm again, and also to dry my clothes. Feeling absolutely exhausted and tired, I stretched out on the bench next to the fire and was quickly asleep. Suddenly, I shot up with a terrible pain in my back. I was literally on fire. Fortunately, I had the presence of mind to roll myself on the ground to extinguish it. After I finally put out the blaze, I realized that my entire back was burned and I found myself in severe pain. Since my outfit was burned at the back as well, I put it on back to front so that the burns on my back were protected. What could he do in the middle of the night? He had no other choice but to go back to the Unterbergerhof to be able to treat his burns somehow and get some new clothes. In great fear of being detected, he stealthily went down to the farm. Despite shivering with fever, he was so thirsty that he stopped at every stream to take a drink. It was almost daybreak when he arrived at the farmhouse, but Franziska Unterberger was afraid and sent him away again. He was being searched for everywhere. I had to go to my parents. They didn't like the idea of hiding me for a while, but I had no other choice since a new day was already dawning and I could have been easily detected. So they had to take me in. I found myself a hiding place in the hayloft. My mother then came with some wet towels to cool my burns. She also brought some soup that she had put into a milk can and lifted up to me with the help of a hay fork. After two days, 
I had had enough of my parents lamenting and I chose to leave them again. I found myself a cave situated on a mountain slope. It was very small and not very high, therefore I couldn't stand erect. Using moss and branches, I made myself comfortable in it. It was a fine hiding place and I had a good view all over the region. Nobody could have ever taken me by surprise. This ideal hiding place was especially important as the Nazi search party was already on his heels. After some days, the warm wind returned and the new snow that covered the earth began to melt again. Bad for me, since the cave I was lodged in was made of limestone, where the water kept dripping through into the cave and soon I was soaked to the skin. When I developed bad diarrhea as well, I had to move because I would not have survived another night there in the cave. I had to go back to the Meister in Alpert. But the danger was not over yet. The NS search party was still searching for him. There were three Nazis together with the mountain guide Franz Kain, who knew the region like the back of his hand and was forced to show them the way. As a former workmate of Engleitner, he was familiar with his attitude, especially in connection with his rejection of military service. The scouts had already searched through all the huts and lodges in the neighborhood, but without success. Franz Kain, presuming that Engleitner was hiding at the Meister Eden Althut, had so far managed to keep the Nazis away from it. Thick fog made it difficult for them to find their way, but with the use of a map, the group came to Breitenberg Mountain, close to where Engleitner was hiding. Not far away from the hut, the leader stopped, looked at his map and said, There must be another hut down there, the last one. We will pay it a visit. Now Kain had to protest. He said, now, with this fog, it is much too dangerous for me to climb down to that hut. The leader remarked, if it is really that dangerous, then we will go down some other time. This was how Kain managed to divert the leader's attention away from the hut. If the Nazi had stuck to his plan to climb down to pay me a visit, it would have meant my arrest and certain death. A short time after this perilous situation for Engleitner, the German Reich capitulated. On May 5, 1945, it was no longer dangerous for Leopold Engleitner to return home. This adventurous escape had saved him from certain death, because at the base in Komau, which he had to report to, there were no survivors after an attack by Czech troops. It really had paid off that he, Leopold Engleitner, even when threatened with death, had stuck to his principles. His way was different. He just said no, and could thus keep a clean conscience. Leopold Engleitner's life proves that it was possible to say a clear no to Hitler's regime of terror. 20th century history would surely have been written differently if more of his contemporaries had acted as courageously as Leopold Engleitner. I'm grateful to all of you who have sent in uh, questions and I'm now going to read your uh, questions and we'll translate them into German and Leopold Engleitner will try to answer them. The first question I have, what might have happened if you would have renounced on paper your faith but continued to practice your religion? 
Also die Frage ist, was wäre passiert, wenn Sie Ihren Glauben abgeschworen hätten auf dem Papier mit einer Unterschrift, aber Ihre Religion weiter ausgeübt hätten, Ihren Glauben weiter praktiziert hätten? Und dadurch hätte man den Geist Jehovas verloren. Ja, und was wäre noch die Folge gewesen? Ja, die Folge hätte ich gar. In Krimke wäre ich eingezogen worden, nicht wahr? Dann hätte ich für mich damit den Nazi, den Hitler verschrieben. Ich war aber ein getaufter Zeug Jehovas. Also, es war ein Ding der Möglichkeit. Uh, if he would have signed that paper uh, for him, that uh, would have meant that he would have renounced his faith, that he was lost his spirituality, and then he would have had to uh, go for military service for Hitler anyhow. And naturally, uh, that uh, was one thing he absolutely wouldn't have wanted to do. The next question from Patsy is, how did you keep from getting angry throughout all this persecution? Also die Frage ist, wie haben Sie es geschafft, wie ist es Ihnen gelungen, Ärger und Hass von Ihnen sich selber abzuhalten während all dieser Verfolgung, die Sie erlitten haben? Jeder Mensch hat seinen freien Willen. Sie haben halt anders gebraucht, echt wie ich, nicht wahr? Sie waren, haben die gerechten Grundsätze, Jehovas, haben sie verachtet dadurch, als ich einen Menschen unterworfen habe. Ja, und warum du? Warum hast du keinen Hass? <lacht> ich habe mich dafür gerechte Grundsätze versprochen, nicht wahr? Ich wollte an diesem festhalten, nicht? Ja, und dann Zorn gegenüber denen, was Ob hätte das bewirkt bei dir? Zorn, da hätte ich, hätte ich mir nur selbst geschadet dadurch. Also Zorn ist das Schlechteste, was ein Mensch haben kann. He, he, uh, his free will um, prompted him to stand firm in a way because he said anger only hurt you and he didn't want to be hurt. So that's why he kept his way in a way that he not even felt any animosity towards the ones which tortured him. And it was his free will um, from, yeah. yes, and And uh, he left the free will reign of his uh, tormentors. He uh, did not in the, ever interfere. The next question from Ted Mattison. Uh, were you acquainted with Magdalena Kusero Reuter and Ernst Seliger? Seliger. Nein, bin ich nicht beisammen, die habe ich später kennengelernt. Wo? 
In Frankreich. Aha. Was war da? Ja, da war da waren wir von der französischen Regierung eingeladen, also KT, Backing, KT durchgehalten haben, waren eingeladen zu einer, zu einer Beschichtigung von Frankreich. Und da hast du die Kusserhof kennengelernt? Da habe ich die kennengelernt, ja. So he wasn't in the concentration camp with them, but he got to know them later. The next question from Ruth Wang. When did you first arrive at a concentration camp and how long were you in the concentration camps altogether? Wann bist du das erste Mal ins Konzentrationslager gekommen? Nach Buchenwald? 1939. And wie lange waren Sie insgesamt in den Lagern? Wie viele Jahre? For four years he was interned in concentration camps. The next question from Pauline. At any time, did you feel like you could not go on? Haben Sie je das Gefühl gehabt, Sie könnten nicht durchhalten, es könnte nicht weitergehen? Ich habe ja mir auch für gerechte Grundsätze entschieden und ich war auch überzeugt, das ist das Rechte und deswegen habe ich auch festgehalten. Also hat es nie einen Moment gegeben, wo du gesagt hast, ja. ich werfe alles hin? Jede, jede Abweichung von diesen gerechten Grundsätzen bedeutet ja Tod. Und ich wollte ja leben. Okay, hat es also nie einen Moment gegeben, wo du gesagt hast, aufgeben? Absolut nicht. He never had a moment where he said that he would give up. He wanted to have peace of mind and self-respect. Here's a question from Keith Hornback. Are you happy? Sind Sie glücklich? Bist du glücklich? Ja, boy. <laughs> <laughs> And it is his wish that we all should be happy. Uh, here's a question by somebody unnamed. He wants to know, Sir, do you see the same political climate that led to Hitler's ascent to power? Also sehen Sie in der jetzigen Welt eine... Situation, ein ähnliches politisches Klima, das zu Hitlers Aufstieg zur Macht geführt hat. Wenn du die, die 30er Jahre betrachtest, das politische Klima damals, das war ja, also das hat ja, du hast mir ja oft gesagt, dass das ja richtig zum Hitlerschen hingeführt hat. Glaubst du, dass jetzt auch so ein politisches Klima ist, dass wie das sozusagen so ein, eine Zeit kommen wird, dass sowas noch einmal passiert. Glaubst du, dass das jetzt die Gefahr genauso groß ist wie damals? Ich halte das nicht für möglich, weil die Radikalisierung nicht mehr so stark unter dem Menschen vorhanden ist, durch die raue Erfahrung, die sie selbst gemacht hatten. In der Nazizeit? Ja. Also. I don't think that uh, it could happen because uh, Hitler under the Hitler or Nazi regime, it was a completely different situation, even though we have today some uh, people which are already stirring up neo-Nazism and said like, uh, 
It never happened again. Uh, it never happened. The next question is from Christine. Uh, what favorite scripture did you keep in mind to keep you from giving up? Also, was war Ihre liebste Schriftstelle, Bibelstelle, die Ihnen dazu verholfen hat, nicht aufzugeben? Was war sozusagen dein Lieblingstext aus der Bibel, der dir Kraft gegeben hat, da durchzuhalten? Was ist der? Psalm 23, Vers 1, wo es heißt, ich hoffe, ich bin Hirte, mir wird nichts mangeln. Okay, he said his favorite scripture is Psalm 23, verse 1, Jehovah is my shepherd, nothing is lacking. Next question. In the future, will you be giving a presentation in Washington State or Oregon State? Naturally, if uh, someone asks me to come, I will go. <laughs> Here's a question from Haida Yui. Since so many educated people, lawyers, doctors, and so on, collaborated with Hitler's atrocities, what is needed besides education to maintain conviction when tested? Also, da so viele äh, Leute mit einem akademischen Hintergrund, mit Bildung wie Rechtsanwälte, Ärzte und so weiter, mit äh, Hitler und seinem Regime zusammengearbeitet haben, was braucht man außer fester Überzeugung, äh, aus, Entschuldigung, was braucht man außer Bildung, äh, um äh, seine Überzeugungen aufrechtzuerhalten, wenn sie auf die Probe gestellt werden? Es haben ja Rechtsanwälte, Studierte, äh, dem Hitler sind gefolgt. Also man sieht, die Bildung, diese, die hat eigentlich nicht sehr viel gebracht. Es ist die Frage, was braucht man noch außer diese Bildung? dass man äh, seinen Willen, so wie du, äh, seiner Überzeugung trau, treu bleiben kann? Eine Herzenswärme braucht man dazu. Das ist das Notwendigste, nicht wahr? Und, und scheinbar verliert man, keine hohe Bildung, verliert man diese Herzensbilder. Darum sind einfache Menschen oft gebildete, hochgestudierte, hochstudierte Menschen. Und was noch? Was, was könnte man auch, also, es gibt ja auch Studierte mit, mit einem guten Herzen. Also ja, sicherlich, die haben ihr Herz nicht verloren, tut sie so in Studium. So verstanden? Liebe zu Menschen. Ne? Ja. Liebe zu Menschen, ja, richtig. Uh, the, the, the heart condition is the main thing, the love for mankind and a positive outlook will, will suffice. The last question from Coqui Santiago. My only question is, if I may be so bold, is would I, could I, may I give him a hug?
He's no young man anymore, but uh, a hug is still welcome. So, may, may I ask Koki Santiago to come up, perhaps? She can give her and give her and her. So I understand Leopold Engleitner is going to have the last uh, word. Uh, may I, darf ich Sie bitten, Ihr Wort am Ende dieser schönen und bewegenden Stunde zu sagen? I thank you very much for your interest in my life story. I'll be back. I would like to thank Leopold Engleitner very much for uh, coming to us and for this very moving hour with him. And there is the opportunity to get the book signed uh, by him and Bernhard Rammersdorfer outside. I thank you all for coming here. Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.